Jordan Foster is in Toronto, for example. Mr. Foster is a Ph.D. candidate at the U of T. His research lies at the intersection of culture, media, and inequality. Jordan is also co-author of a terrific piece of the conversation we picked up on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the title, Pandemic Finger Pointing. New Research Sheds Lights on Who Canadians Blame in Times of Crisis. Jordan Foster, good morning, sir. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Jordan. Just before we get into the stuff that you wrote, you and your colleagues at uh, U of T have written, uh, what's it What's it doing outside your house right now? Because we understand yesterday we we're talking about flights being cancelled and if Vancouver people were flying to Toronto or going to pick someone up flying out of Toronto, uh, they may have a lot of waiting going on. Is that still the case this morning? You got a big whack yesterday. I think I think that things are looking better. There's certainly still a lot of snow on the ground, but the snow has stopped falling, so I'm grateful for that. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for the update there. Now, let's talk a little bit about this article, uh, the new research who, which sheds light on who Canadians blame in times of crisis. And the time of crisis that you refer to uh, just had its one-year anniversary a short while ago, Jordan. Uh, that, of course, was the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa. Talk to us a little bit about the type of research that you've uh, availed yourself of to put this article together. Uh, yeah, so our, our research centered around more than a thousand uh, Canadians. It was a representative sample, meaning that it was drawn from across Canada at different uh, income levels. And we were particularly interested in those who faced health vulnerabilities during the pandemic. So we centered our research on uh, men and women with disabilities in the community and okay. chronic health conditions. Uh, we then did uh, follow-up interviews with members of this broader sample, and this helped to inform our understanding of who was to blame during the pandemic. And some of that touched on, of course, the, the Freedom Convoy uh, and its resurgence, its one-year anniversary, uh, and, and those sort of broader public concerns around things like uh, public safety measures, mm -hmm. government intervention, and the distribution of public aid. Right. And, and of course, the Freedom Convoy came at the end pretty much of all of this, too, didn't it, Jordan? So there was a lot of time and a lot of frustration that was built up that eventually manifested itself in the, in the Freedom Convoy. But this was basically the end result of a lot of blaming and frustration, wasn't it? Yeah, it was sort of, to your point, it's a, it's a logical apex of, you know, year over year of these frustrations being built up among Canadians. And this represents a certain kind of frustration among a specific sort of subpopulation uh, in Canada, those men and women who joined the Freedom Convoy, their mm -hmm. particular frustrations, which centered uh, around, you know, public safety guidelines uh, and to feelings related to public uh, safety restrictions, as well as uh, infringement or perceived infringement on, on their personal freedoms and liberties. Yeah, we're going to do a piece, Jordan, in our next half hour with uh, the Ottawa Bureau Chief of the Globe and Mail, and they've been diving deeply into the, the financial end of all of this and discovered the mega billions of dollars that were essentially overpaid to both companies and individuals who, uh, in many cases, flat out did not qualify. But all of that predicated by ignore obvious red flags directives from the government of Canada at the beginning. So if the government is shoveling money off the back of a truck, literally, uh, and, and people who uh, don't qualify are picking it up and walking away with it, you can't blame them essentially for uh, having money fall into their hands and putting it in their pocket now, can you? 
Well, I mean, that's a good question. It would depend on who you ask. I think that we certainly spoke to a lot of people who felt that those individuals were very much to blame Mm -hmm. for taking advantage of a system that, you know, wasn't working or that perhaps moved too quickly to get aid to people. And I think that's sort of a a fundamental point worth reflecting on is that it was important that aid be distributed very quickly. And when that's the case, there are, of course, going to be errors in its distribution. Now, one of the interesting things about the Auditor General's report is that the the greatest share of that $27.4 billion in question that was sort of over-distributed or wrongly distributed Mm -hmm. went to private businesses. And I think that's really important to highlight because when we spoke to people, we found that, well, their sense was it was individuals who took advantage. And that's not not necessarily untrue, right? But the greatest share of that uh, money actually went to private businesses, which is different from saying, well, you know, my neighbor, is taking advantage of serve or public aid. So that's really important to highlight. Right. And and so as as the, the Freedom Convoy sort of as it progressed across the country and arrived in Ottawa and eventually sort of made its case in its own extremely loud way, uh, what did you, what messaging, uh, because they arrived from across Western Canada, essentially, just loaded to the, to the gunnels with blame. And they were there to just honk their horns and point fingers at those they blamed for bad calls through the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah, no, they were, I mean, this is a a group of protesters who were uh, very agitated and upset by restrictions, by perceived infringements on their individual liberties, and who took uh, Ottawa to task, essentially, for having uh, produced different kinds of legislation and enforcement. Now, this is curious for so many reasons, because obviously provincial governments played a big role in uh, producing policy uh, in each province, right? And these varied a little bit with respect to restrictions and public safety measures. So curious why protesters would assemble at the federal level. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also interesting that this is a group that wasn't just upset about the government and its policymaking, but also seemed kind of upset at everyday Canadians who disagreed, right? right? They held right. masks to the effect of think for yourself and, you know, you're being uh, misled um, by, by the government, uh, as well as, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, claims around anti-science, right? So very sort of anti-intellectual. So blame abounded in this group, in short. Uh, but it was targeted at different different individuals, different organizations. And that's a really interesting thing in order to, to map and to help us understand how this population made sense of this period of crisis. Right. And, and, and you point out that for many, it's a strategy for managing crisis. Blame helps us make sense of our surroundings and mitigate frustration. That's a quote from your, your piece at The Conversation. And for many, it really does help. Interestingly, of course, uh, these people arrive in Ottawa. Ottawa's ill-prepared on a really good day to deal with any of this, even though they had plenty of, I mean, serious advance notice that what was about to happen did. And so there's a whole new round of blame coming from the people of Ottawa against their own law enforcement people. Yeah, and, and, you know, how much action they should be taking, how forceful that action should be, how quickly they should move. Uh, so this this certainly sort of, I think, uh, spiked frustrations even further, mm-hmm. right? Not just, as you said, uh, among police officials, but for residents in Ottawa who were frustrated by the slowdown uh, in their cities, who had to brush up against protesters that they might not have agreed with and so on. Jordan, uh, final question, Judy. We're, we're grateful that you stuck around with us and, and hung in for an extra week because this is an important conversation to have. And by way of conclusion, what policy uh, provisions could be extracted from this whole process we witnessed a year ago? 
That's a really good question. And it's something that I think uh, myself and others are, are interested in continuing to investigate. I think that one thing that needs to be taken into consideration is how both vulnerable groups, you know, can be better uh, treated in times of crisis. So that was more consistent with our research. So there we were concerned about getting uh, age to particularly vulnerable populations sure, who were yeah. more affected by COVID. Mm-hmm. But with respect to the convoy, we should also be interested in knowing more about how can we mitigate frustrations before they reach this kind of climax? How can we address concerns related to uh, members of the population who are not in favor of things like restrictions, mm. and, and better yet, how can we communicate the information, science, and need for things like restrictions, so that this reaches a broader population in a way that is better understood, in a way that feels less like an infringement uh, on on individual freedom. So I think there's quite a lot of work there to be done. No question um, about that. Provincial and federal level. Yeah. Well, it's great that you've started on the work, and you're not the only one. Good article, too. I'm commending it to my listeners. Pandemic Finger Pointing. New Research Sheds Light on Who Canadians Blame in Times of Crisis, co-authored by our guest Jordan Foster from the University of Toronto. It's at theconversation.com. Jordan, thanks for this. Good to have you aboard today. Yes, thank you so much for having me.